The book of James has always been one of my favorite Bible books to read right from my uh, younger days. It appeals to me be probably because it talks so much about practical day-to-day -day ways of life. And this book is known as the letter of James, which is his English name. In Greek, Jacobus, which translates his Hebrew name as Yaakov. And the ancient and modern translations call him Jacob. And even in my own dialect Bible, James is written as Jacob. And in Hindi, I think it is called Yaqub. So they're all the same. It was written sometime between 40 to 45 AD. And for your information, there are other James as well in the New Testament. And two of them belong to the inner circle of the Lord Jesus. But this James that we are talking about is the half-brother of Jesus himself. And we find this in the book of Acts and in Galatians, they have been mentioned there. And after Peter left to start new churches in other places, James grew to prominence in the mother church of Jerusalem which was made up of mostly Messianic or Christian Jews. This was the first Christian community that was there, and during his 20 years of his leadership, there was great difficulty. There was famine in that region that led to great poverty, and they were persecuted by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Through it all, he was known as the pillar of the Jerusalem church, and also as a peacemaker who led with wisdom and courage until he was murdered. This book is a legacy of his teachings and wisdom, which is condensed to a short and very powerful work. The book begins like a letter, and he writes to the Messianic Jews who are living outside of Palestine to the Jewish diaspora. It is not like Paul's letter. You know that Paul's letter is very specific and also he writes to specific local churches with specific problems. It is rather a summary of James's sage wisdom for every and any community who follows Christ and is not, a, and is not to teach new theological information. He wants to get into your business and challenge how to live. And he's also heavily influenced by two sources mainly. The first is Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom of God, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which he is constantly echoing and quoting in this book. And the second key influence is the biblical wisdom book of Proverbs, especially the chapters 1 to 9. And he literally grew up with Jesus and with the books of Proverbs. And so now his own teachings sound like them. They are full of metaphors, easy to memorize, because there are many of them are one-liners which are easy to remember. And he is calling the messianic community to become truly wise by living according to Jesus' summary of the Torah, which is to love God and to also love your neighbor as yourself.
And interestingly, that is why the book of James is known as the wisdom book in the New Testament. Because of the way he writes it and the influence that he has. So I will begin. In verse 2 it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Our worship leader, our brother Sergeant, also, has also mentioned that. We go through trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James began his letter by dealing with the problem of trials that all believers encounter. Jews who became Christians in the early history of the church experienced much problem and persecution from their unbelieving fellow Jews. We can see that in the book of Acts. All Christians who take a stand for the Lord continues to have a deal with such trials. Thus James's inspired advice is re relevant for us even today. And it will be even for the days to come. The writer pointed out the value of trials to encourage his readers to adopt a positive attitude towards these experiences, to endure them and to view them as God's tools. That's a hard statement. Trials and hardships are God's tools. God uses trials to shape believers into people that will glorify him. We know that the classic example in the Old Testament is Job. The story of Job is like the ultimate measurement of trial and there's no way we can measure our trials to that, to that of Job's. And that is why it is there in the Bible for us to learn from his life. What kinds of trials was James talking about? Did he mean troubles such as running out of money or having to stay up all night with a sick child, job situations, tragedies, everyday troubles? Yes, I think so. That is what he, was, he is talking about. And the Greek word translated trials means approving or to prove specifically the trial of a man's what? Fidelity, integrity, and virtue. And also an enticement to sin temptation. Various temptations to depart from the will of God are in view. Now the context supports this conclusion. Verse 3 restates these trials as the testing of your faith. James was speaking of the different kinds of trials in which we experience temptation to accompany sinners rather than remaining faithful to the Savior. Any trial can constitute a test of our faith, namely a temptation to cease trusting and obeying God. And this is what Robertson said. Trials rightly faced are harmless, but wrongly met become temptations to evil. Trials rightly faced are harmless, but wrongly met become temptations to evil. 
Now James counseled his, lead, his readers to view the various kinds of trials and tribulations they were encountering in their lives as opportunities for growth. He did not urge them to rejoice that they were undergoing trials. He did not advocate a masochistic attitude that unnaturally rejoices in painful experiences. Rather, he commanded them to view their trials as profitable, even though unpleasant. I'm not sure if you're able to resonate with this. But many of us, I think, go through the motions of life each day. It gets hard, it gets difficult. But over here, James is commanding to his people that these trials are profitable even though they are unpleasant. Now when we say all joy, count it all joy, in, the, in some of the translations it can be also read as pure joy. Now the attitude James advocated can take all the bitterness out of even very uncomfortable trials. Regardless of the source of our difficulties, the world, our flesh, or the devil, we can and should be glad as we go through them. Verses 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Trials are the means God uses to make believers the kind of people that bring honor to his name, namely mature Christians. Testing impl implies demonstrating the true quality of something when it undergoes trial. The true nature of gold becomes evident when the refiner heats gold gold ore over a fire. Similarly, the character of God within a Christian that is there because of the Holy Spirit's presence becomes apparent through trials. If it is responded properly. These are trials of our faith in the sense that our trust in God and obedience to God are being stretched to the limits. Trials can result in endurance, steadfastness, and perseverance. And the Greek word translated endurance describes the quality that enables a person to stay on his or her feet when facing a storm. Just imagine that. You're outside standing and there's suddenly a huge storm that's coming and you're able to stand firm even in spite of that storm. We should not try to escape from trials, but submit to the maturing process with patient endurance and joy. It's very easy. Sometimes we do not want to go through difficulties and hardships. We always try to escape, try to find a way out. Or sometimes we would even be angry with God. But then, over here, we have been encouraged to go through it, to face it, because there's going to be much joy later. Today's message is not 
like those are the feel-good messages. But it is a message to encourage us to be strong and to be faithful and to hold fast even in spite of the hardships and the difficulties that can come in life. And it does come many times. God will bring every believer who endures trials rather than running from them to maturity as we persevere in them. James taught that in view of this fact, we should rejoice in our trials rather than rebelling against them. They are God's instruments for perfecting us. From five onwards, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and, will be, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For the person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all ways. What James explained is divine wisdom in verse 5. God's view of life. However, the world which does not have or accept this revealed wisdom generally fails to appreciate the value of enduring trials. Most people count it all joy when they escape trials. And they count is all grief when they have to endure it. I think that's what happens to us many times. Now James use the word wisdom in the sense in which the Old Testament wisdom literature used it. Wisdom denotes a fixed righteous order to which the wise man submits his life. The wise Christian is the one who views life in the light of God's revelation, which is his written word. Every Christian lacks this wisdom to some extent. Wisdom is seeing life realistically from God's perspective. We must read this verse in context to understand it correctly. This is not a promise that God will give everyone who asks him for wisdom a higher IQ. What God promises in this context is the ability to see the importance of enduring trials and persevering in them faithfully. That is the wisdom that James is talking about here. 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I will read from another version, which is the message. When down and outers get a break, cheer. And when the arrogant rich are brought down to size, cheer. Prosperity is as short-lived as a wildflower, so don't ever count on it. You know that as soon as the sun rises, pouring down its scorching heat, 
the flower withers, its petals wilt, and before you know it, that beautiful face is a barren stem. Well, that's a picture of the prosperous life. At the very moment, everyone is looking on in admiration. It fades away to nothing. That is a translation from the message in simple language that's easy for us to understand. Materially poor believers should derive joy from focusing their thinking on their spiritual riches. Likewise, the materially wealthy should remember that riches are temporary and that one's real condition before God is a very humble one. Robertson says this, the cross of Christ lifts up the poor and brings down the high. It is the great leveler of men. The cross of Christ is the one that levels every one of us to that place. All of us are sinners. And it is that cross that has saved us. And Adamson also says this, Speaking of his friend, a poor Christian, a wealthy unbeliever remarked, when I die, I shall leave my riches. When he dies, he will go to his. Did you get that? When I die, I shall leave my riches. This is what the rich man said. And when he dies, the poor man, he will go to his riches. Our trials as well as our triumphs on the earth are only temporary. This fact should help us endure our trials and not become self-confident in our triumphs. 12 to 18. Thus far James revealed the value of trials, how God uses them to perfect the Christian and how to obtain God's perspective on our on one's trials when this is difficult to see. And then next he proceeded to explain the consequences of obedience and disobedience and the source of temptations. So his readers could manage their trials effectively. Verse 12, the Christian who perseveres under trials, who does not yield to temptations to depart from the will of God demonstrates his or her love for God. It is those who persevere under trials out of love for God that he will reward with a crown of life. We read that in Revelations chapter 2 verse 10. Only the person who endures will receive the blessing. And those who demonstrate their love for the Lord by persevering under trials will receive life to its fullest potential in the present and in the future. You know, there are different kinds of crowns that the Bible talks about, the believer's crowns. An imperishable crown, we find that in 1 Corinthians. A crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians. A crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy. A crown of life that we just talked about in James and also in Revelation. And a crown of glory in 1 Peter chapter 5. God is never the source 
of temptation. He does not try to get us to sin. Even though some people blame God for their sins, he himself is not even subject to temptation because he is totally separate from sin and not susceptible to evil. Rather than blaming God, we need to recognize that we are responsible when we yield to temptation and not God. James goes on to defend God before those who doubted his goodness or reliability or who had given up hope in time of testing and had concluded that this was their fate. I think many times we hear people say that. It is my fate. That is why I'm going through what I'm going through right now. James wanted his readers to have no doubt about God's purposes and methods in dealing with them. In verse 17, every act of giving and every gift given has its source, which is God. This does not include temptations to sin. He always does everything for his own glory and his creature's good. His glory and for your and my good. The greatest of God's gift for believers is the gift of new life in Christ. This verse along with the preceding one shows clearly that James believed that eternal life was a gift of God's grace. Having talked about trials, what should be the proper response to it? Verse 19 onwards, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James exhorted his readers to respond properly to their trials. In this section, he stressed the word of God because it is the key to resisting temptations and responding to trials correctly. One must accept God's word, act on it, and abide it. Now, if the word of God is so important, then why is it? that reading it becomes so difficult for us. Many times we have left this job of reading God's word, maybe to the pastors, to the missionaries, to the evangelists. We think that it is their job only to read God's word. But my brothers and sisters, 
All of us go through this motion of life. We face trials and temptations and difficulties that come. It is the word of God that we need to depend on. So let us take this effort. Let us make efforts in reading God's word. And not only hearing it, reading it, but we also need to apply it. We may respond to trials by complaining about them and becoming angry over them. James advised his readers to remain silent and calm and to listen submissively to the word of God. Many people have observed that we have two ears and one mouth which ought to remind us to listen twice as much as we speak. You, can, you, you may listen to twice, but speak only once, not two, three times or four times. Many people have observed that and we have heard people saying that many times as well. So let us be careful in the way we speak. Now verses 19 to 21 stress the importance of listening to the word. And verses 22 to 25 emphasize the necessity of putting the word into practice, applying it. The call to do what it says lies at the center of all that James teaches. It sums up the message of the whole book. Put into practice what you profess to believe. Indeed, verse 22 may well be the key verse of James, the epistle. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, de deceiving yourselves. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James proceeded to explain what the doer of work does from 26. And then it goes, it goes further up to chapter 2 itself. But we will not go there. Verse 26 describes someone who fears or worships God. The Jews who were James's original readers typically regarded almsgiving, prayer, fasting, regular attendance at worship service, and the observance of holy days and feasts as signs of true spirituality. They had to keep it all correctly. And for them, that was spirituality. However, James said a better test of spirituality was God's control of one's tongue. It would be so different from what they would normally practice. And here James is telling them, true spirituality is how you take control of your tongue. We will hear more of that later in chapter 3 about the tongue because it's so important. As we all live in Delhi, in this city where you can hear all the expletives flying left and right, it has become part of their normal communication. No control over their tongue. How about us? 
do we speak before we think? Our words can build, encourage, or cause much harm to the other. So let us be careful in the way we speak to others. And then further down, taking care of orphans and widows is a duty that lies close to the heart of God. We read much of that in the Old Testament, in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, it's all mentioned there. Yet, many who professed to love him neglected it. In Psalms, in Ecclesiastes, and in Mark, it is mentioned. To summarize verses 22 to 27, a person's religion must consist of more than superficial acts. It is not enough to listen to the statement of spiritual truth, nor is it sufficient to engage in formal religious activity. The person whose religious experience is genuine will not put spiritual truth into practice, and his life will be marked by the love for others and holiness before God. Love for others and holiness before God. As I close, I would like to remind us of this. We are constantly facing and battling trials and temptations in our lives. Let us not be angry towards God. Let us rather ask God for strength to face the storm as that will produce steadfastness, which is maturity. And in the end, we will receive the gifts, which is the crown of life. And secondly, if only Christians would practice what they believe and hear from the word of God, the world would have been a much better place today. I need to ask a question as to what is the difference between me and my neighbor? Do they see the difference in me? Let us be the people that God wants us to be and let us be doers of the word of God. May God help us to face trials, difficulties, and hardships and face the storm. Let's not run away. It's going to produce maturity. It's going to produce much fruit. And let us be people who would practice what we speak. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the book of James that is so rich in wisdom. I pray that we may be people that would not to try to run away from trials and hardships, but help us to face them because that is going to produce steadfastness and maturity in our walk with you, in our lives. And I pray that we may also practice what we speak. As we listen to your word, help us to apply them in our lives as well. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.